Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code S-T-A-P-L-E-2-0. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Like gangbangers working the local 7 Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! This and Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. This time for the Heat 
to Book Club. I am your host, Blake Howard. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us here at One Heat Minute Productions. It is nice to be back in the saddle with you talking about more heat, talking about Heat 2, New York Times best-selling novel written by the one and only Michael Mann and, of course, Meg Gardner. This series is not a page at a time. No, it is not a chapter at a time. No, it is, in fact, a part at a time. There are six parts of Heat to the novel. This episode is a double breakdown featuring two of our most amazing, incredible crew members who've been here right from the beginning. One of them, a fantastic listener, and one of them truly the co-conspirator of this entire project. That's right. Stu Coot is back. Uh, You would have heard him uh, throughout the series. One of the great minds talking about heat. One of my dearest friends, a terrific cinematic film mind, former host of the cinephiles, mostly heard now popping up in guest spots and rum and rants on one heat meta productions joins us to kick off the show because it feels so appropriately in line with everything that we've done on one heat minute so far. And then I'm joined by a new friend, but a lifelong crew member, an obsessive one heat minute fan. One of the men who joined me in the first part of the finale of one heat minute, John P. Glynn. He is officially the chief meme officer, CMO of one heat minute productions. And uh, he's a phenomenal heat mind, a great true Chicagoan and someone who as you would expect, loving One Heat Minute and loving heat is a great chat around all things. So we're going to dive into part one, which we have also included the kind of heat wrap-up prologue uh, as well. So before we dive into that conversation with John, let's talk to my man, Stu Coop. Despite many people believing that this man can't read, I've enlisted him first up to talk about Heat 2 in our Heat 2 book club, largely because talking about something new to do with Heat feels sacrilegious not to have this man somehow involved. He helped us smash the champagne bottle on one Heat Minute. He's now here for the Heat 2 book club. He understands all of the fears and anxieties of such a thing existing in the universe. He is a dear friend. He helped me close out One Heat Minute before Michael Mann's episode, before a few sprinkled bonus episodes. It's Mr. Stukut. Welcome back to One Heat Minute. Welcome back to your old hang. It's a pleasure to be back. I feel like this is the 17th victory lap I've returned for. So this this is good. It's a victory marathon. <laughs> it's now the victory marathon. But we can reveal here, this is the first time I'm going to say it, and this is the best time I think I, I can say it for a recording. After the Heat 2 book club, one heat minute is retired. Oh, thank goodness. Until <laughs> Until they adapt this book into a mini series. No, no, they want to do it as a film. A feature film. They want to yeah, do it as a film. Yeah, it would play. I think it would, it would play very well as a film. But um, yeah, no, I, I think it's, I, I say this each time, it's this, this project has brought out the very best and the very worst in you at most times. It's brought out the passion and the dedication and you also 
can't let um, can't let something just lie. You have to keep picking no. it up every six months and dusting it back off. Anytime someone looks sideways at eat, you're going to be there dusting it off. You're going to be I'm, like the. You just got to know how to grab it, Stu, and I know how to grab it. So that's why I'm there. I'm out there all night, dedicated. Um, no, there's been a few instances where, you know, I've been compelled to talk about heat, coming back, talk about, you know, the experience of the screening and things like that and getting the band back together, so to speak, to do some of that stuff. That's all been really, that's been a complete blast. So some of those excuses are nice, but I feel like it's time. I feel like this is the last dance, uh, you know, for we've done we've done five rings you know on this project and i feel like <laughs> i feel like it's time to park it i'm so excited and thrilled to continue to talk about contemporary man films and man cinema that we're doing over at miami nice katie walsh and i continue to just have an absolute ball on that show our collateral confession sort of like parallel project that, that it's blooming um is also just a complete blast so i'm having so much fun talking about that and getting excited about new projects that are coming up that I feel like one heat minute, the show that I will always love and that has defined this entire project going forward in every iteration has had some influence on how I approach it. Um, it's, I feel the like it's the namesake, you know, it's the namesake of your, your work. As well. it's, who, it's who I am. It's, but it's, but I feel like I'm going to, I'm going to put it completely on hiatus um, save for like, uh, you know, something miraculous, but like, I feel like a Robert De Niro podcast might be six minutes, you know, like he would just, yeah. like, what, do, what do you remember about this scene? Yeah, it was, it was good. Cool. Yeah, um, no. what, do you, what, yeah. what do you remember about this scene? It was good. I made it. <laughs> I was in that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Do you remember anything else about this? No. Yeah. I'm not even sure I was in it. <laughs> I think the intro for the Robert De Niro one heat minute would be longer than the show. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be like him on, it'd be like him on extras. Yeah, just, that'd be him. That'd be the show. That'd be that'd be the whole thing. Maybe I need. But to it's interesting. Up. I it was fun thinking of like De Niro being on my mind as I'm still working my way through the book. Um, now I've now yeah getting haunted with images of young young De Niro and young Pacino, and I don't I don't hate that idea as I'm going through it. Um, have they done much press? I've sort of I've stayed away from the launch of it. I don't know if you did. Have they actually sort of sort of defined the roles of what man and like um meg um how they sort of broke up the the writing duties have they sort of gone uh, into much detail about that yes and no i think what was happening is that the the broadcast about it was that meg and michael man meg gardner that is who because he's co-writer wrote the book and it was almost like they were passing the baton between one another. Like man had rigorously outlined the story and knew very specifically certain elements that he wanted to cover. And then it feels like, especially in the more expansive sections that, that Meg was there to help with a crime writer's brain plot and take us through those things and, and like flesh out of all those ideas and narrativize them because some sections feel like they're so coherently man and others feel more like they're a bit more languid and, and, and it is truly a blend of styles. So I think they, they haven't sort of done, they've done a bit of Lennon McCartney. They haven't sort of said what's what. Mm. And yeah, I, I think it might take till later, you know, the, <laughs> the Peter Jackson seven hour multi-series documentary yeah, to talk yeah. about who exactly contributes to what and see how there's a, a rhythm or rhyme with that. 
um, like get ally get back. But I, but that's, I think the more that you read it, I think there's some certain like Michael Mannisms that feel like, oh, these chapters or this idea or this piece of interiority is very Michael Mann. And then when there's larger set pieces and plotting and how things go through, it's like the connective tissue feels very Meg. It doesn't feel, and there's, you can sort of sometimes feel a bit of a stylistic, you know, contrast between those two things, but they haven't, haven't gone to the detail of that. And I would, I would hazard to say, as you know, as one heat minute fans know, um, we knew about this book at the time that we we're making one heat minute, right? So like 2016 yeah, to 2000, yeah. you know, um, uh, sorry, 2017 to 2019, we knew this book was being written. We knew we even spoke to Reed Farrell Coleman. And I know you and I have talked offline excitedly about the prospect yeah. of all that stuff that we heard stuff that wasn't published because at the time it wasn't right to publish it. And I didn't want to share it and spoil anything that I'd learned. Um, but I feel like so much of it was close. I just don't think they broke it. I think they, I think they mapped out where they wanted to go. They just hadn't quite done the ins and outs. So then once Meg came in, they probably took whole sections out, rewrote stuff, reorganized parts, figured out a bit of a rhythm for how they were going to tell the story. And then they sort of filled in all the gaps. So yeah, because it's been a working, you know, it's been a work in progress really for, you know, strangely enough, the time that they started writing heat two tracks basically at exactly the same time that you and I would drunk in a Sydney film festival yeah. hotel room talking about doing this yeah. project. So it all sort of, there was a coalescence I think. And, uh, but it hasn't been mapped out specifically. No. Because at times it feels like a sort of a beefy screenplay or like a, like a script kind of thing in its, in its writing. And that yeah. time sort of feels like that's the sort of very, the man structure yes. in it. Because even the, I sort of, and it may be just because we've watched the film so many times and watched his work so many times, you get, you pick up the rhythms of his editing and it feels like it's there in the writing as well. It yes. feels like it's written, like the cuts in action feel very much like almost, because man, like I think he leans more to a sort of a, like his background of like a TV style editing, like it's short, sharp action. Yes. It's not like even like not withstanding some of the action sequences in the heat, but most of it is like these real controlled bursts of aggression and violence and passion and pleasure. It's it's not an extended process like no. um, other or, or, authors really go into, say, draw everything out, whereas this has a real sort of perfunctory nature about it, which I found fascinating to read. It's, it's not... It's not overly descriptive in its prose, which again is sort of mirrors a lot of his storytelling generally. Like it's, it, it, it's, it it's, ec yeah. it's economical, right? Yeah. Like I feel yeah. like you you would have had the very similar experience to me is that we're so familiar with this text, particularly you watch it, uh, the, the film Heat. We've watched it countless times. You read the book, and I feel like almost this book had this weird experience where I'm reading some parts of it, and I'm like, okay, this is the this is the director scene direction instruction portion of the, of the page yeah. where it tells me yeah. how to establish the scene and where we are and sets it. And then it's like, bang, dialogue, 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 movement, movement, pace. And you're like, now I'm, I've had the scene set and now I'm in the scene. And then it reads yeah, like it's, sort of, it's, it's got that economy. Sort of getting, yeah. It's like the making of <laughs> in a strange way. It's, yes. And it was, I was really worried going into it that I was going to get, cause I was, fairly burnt by once a, like once upon a time in Hollywood 
once upon a time, I always feel it like, I feel like Tarantino wrote that in a way, this is my cynical view, that he wrote it in a way that someone would read the book and then watch his movie and go, no, the film was better yes. than the book. And, and so in many people, strange, that, many people read yeah. the book and went, this is, you know, some part, there's some great additional scenes, particular scene with Steve McQueen and, and um, Rick Dalton talking in a bar later yeah. in the book. Yeah. Super great. There's a couple of great, you know, interactions, Rick and his co-star. There's a couple of like these scenes that are so iconic that flesh things out a little bit more, etc. And then there are other parts here just like, I don't like this and I didn't need it. And therefore, yeah, the conclusion then, at the end of it is like, I don't think I'll ever read the book again, but holy no. shit, if, if Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is on any time of the day or night, oh, I'll watch it. It, it. Yeah, it's probably his best film. Yeah. So, but and there was just something that he sort of, if you then looked at the film, he's then cut so much out of the book and rewritten scenes, and you're like, oh yeah, this, this filmmaker knows his text better than this author does. <laughs> yes. and I, I, was, I, I was worried that we were going to get too much of the that over explaining too much depth in this but like the way this just feels like such a continuation of these characters in such simple ways like vincent going to the hospital like going to the young girl's hospital bed yes and when he's like like when he because it's so similar to sort of the talking about his dreams yes with um um neil that you sort of go, all right, I can extrapolate back to this time and what you're trying to say. It's almost like this sort of mystical quality and there's the way that he's talking to this this um, comatose victim. Uh, I really like those touches. And I was worried as well uh, originally how they were setting it around Chris because Chris was such a, you know, he's an interesting character generally, but he's a bit of a, he's a bit of a, I don't know, like almost like a blank like that blankness to him, that blank stare, that coldness. I didn't think you'd actually be able to grasp too much of more of a character onto him than we sort of experienced. Like, yeah. Because Kilmer just relishes he, Kilmer relishes the wordlessness, right? He's just like yeah, but, and he's there's and he's he's, he's, he's so, so absent as a like like yeah. he's an absent person. He's not like I always think about and one thing keeps going through my head every time I'm reading this book when they do when they bust the LAPD watching them. And when like Chris is just there and he's like, just says, Oh, maybe it's the score they're on, not us. But he says it in this way. That's so like, he's so vacant. Maybe it's the score they're on to the place, not us. Cause it's been hit a couple of times, you know, something. Assume they got our phones, assume they got our houses, assume they got us right here, right now, as we sit, everything, assume it all. Now we're going to buy the bank package from Kelsey. I'll front that. That's not a problem. Well, what the hell happens to Van Zandt or 750? Van Zandt, listen, with the heat we got, you want to play World War II in the streets with Van Zandt? No, I want my 750. And when he gets a pass, I got more motivation to whack Van Zandt than either of you. He is a fucking luxury. Our problem is take the bank or split right now. Do not go home. Do not pack. Nothing. 30 seconds flat from now, we are gone on our separate ways. That's it. Chris. bank is worth the risk. I need it, brother. You should stay and take it down. That's where I come out. Like, no. Like, he's just so, like, just goes with this current. And in this, you sort of get that there is 
there is a bit more of a driving force to him, which I guess you'd we would expect because we are spending a lot more time in his in his head. And I was worried initially when it, when it, how it starts and um, how they sort of get him out of the city. I was like, I was worried, but once it set, settles into its rhythm, and then the time, like I was worried about the time jumping around as well. And it's seamless. It's it's really special. Like this is something. I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever get. I don't know who could step into these shoes. I think it'd be really hard to do. I think it could be really interesting. I'd love to see someone try and like adapt this as almost like some kind of animated thing, like <laughs> yes. in a way, just to just to sort of have to sidestep around the argument of like who like de-aging versus recasting. I wish there was a way to sort of find some, and it would never happen, obviously, but just um like a happy medium of like trying to find it. And it's not because it can't be done, but it's because we have just been so, you know, Stu is an unabashed Star Wars fan. And on this show, I can say, look, we are both, we have that in common, but we try so hard. I mean, Stu's more of an antagonistic prick about it, which is very amusing um, to Star Wars fandom and discourse just in general. But the I feel bad for the discourse for just around it i feel like it's going to be so tiresome the minute that if michael mann aspira his aspirations come true here and they make this into this gigantic epic film and he recasts these characters and he does what he needs to do to make this work i just imagine that the discourse is going to be so tiring and tiresome by the time that the film is actually made that i can almost hear myself already going like why are you doubting michael mann like, what are we, why are we, why are we doing this? Like, what are we doing? Yeah. Like, I also, it'd be, it'd be so hard to, like, it, it would just be so hard to do. I don't, yes. I don't know what the, like, without going, you'd almost have to sort of cast it with like sort of relatively unknown theatre actors who are un, untested on screen just to give some degree of like, this, especially these eras, like to find an 88 80, De Niro, 88 De Niro and a 2000 De Niro. Yeah. Like they don't, I just, I don't even know who would be like, no one even really has now the, not many actors even now have the physicality of these guys. The sort of, like you sort of think of like, it would almost be what midnight run era De Niro. That's who it is. hundred like percent. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like it's not schlubby De Niro, but it's definitely he's not like shredded. Sort of, he's he's be, actually no. his peak physical condition was two films: Cape Fear. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, Raging Bull first, obviously in his younger yeah. career. Yeah, yeah. Before he then blew himself up for the purposes of that role. Yeah. Then he does Cape Fear, and he looks unbelievable. Like Max Cady is such an amazing character, and he's meant to look mm. like a freaking swole. Prison, like he's been in prison, yeah. Like a prison yeah. guy who's just like he's he's just tortured his body to death, um, basically to do all that. So that's amazing. But then you've got him that transitions into heat, and he takes away all of that like superficial, swole muscle. But he's very lean, muscular, tough. Like even Ace Rothstein in Casino, which he makes right around the same time, he's he's covering up his physicality and all these like glorious robes and huge. Yeah. And he's hiding suits. behind the, but, and the all cigarette, the like literally hiding behind the cigarette nearly most of the time. And it yes. sort of detracts from the fact that he does look that like, he still looks like a whippet. 
Yes. Like when yeah. you see him get when he get when he gets out of bed with Edie, you're like <laughs> he's still he's he, he he's still a really slender guy. It's almost like you know um, Clooney in the American. That yes. kind of like just super yeah, super and it's, small for what they are. Yeah. And it's the same thing with like uh, the, the other great example is. And I learned this making Zodiac Chronicles, like Daniel Craig in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo came off a Bond film. And so they have to dress him in these big coats and these loose-fitting, scarfy, sweatery-looking yeah. gear because they have to kind of hide, like, his natural lean athleticism and go, yeah. oh, this guy could be a believable journalist. Whereas, you know, he's just coming off Bond where he looks phenomenal. Like, he's in peak physical yeah, condition. It's, yeah, it's a curse on nearly all of Like, it's why I can't accept like Hemsworth and The Rock in most things because they've just they've designed that's their persona and it's very hard like like you look at Al like Pacino is not going to really be doing much shirt off work in in heat you know what I mean like no. it's never that that's not that style and they even then the young version of him is still not exactly like it, it's it's not an MCU body sort of thing which is no. You know, and I don't know who you get to, again, recasting that would be like who, and then for them not just to do just a parody of those younger versions as well, which is almost impossible. But I don't know who who's coming up to do it. I, I, part of me wants to see them have a crack at this because yes. I, there, is a, there is a story there. And yeah, sure, this would this would still have to get pruned back a fair bit. I think so much even, of it melts away, mate. You know, what we're yeah, talking about yeah. precisely is that like Michael Mann can tell so much of this story visually that in a book, you actually have to write the words. And when he, when you actually, and especially part three, which is the sort of <clears throat> the central crisp part of the story. And even the Chicago stories, the setting of the scene, the contextualizing of the places, the, the way that different characters feel, the way they enter exit behaviors, so much of it just melts away from the text because he just shows everything. You know, you, sh you yeah, when you're yeah. in it, when you're in a fixer, when you're in a fixer's garage who does nothing but like get you cars in a in Chicago of 1988. There's no one who knows Chicago in 1988 like Michael Mann. So he just makes it happen. He just makes it happen. It just looks like that. It feels like that. It's definitely it's definitely page turner. Like I hope it doesn't just and I don't think it will i hope it's not just going to become another airport book like i actually hope it is a book that people actually find like i think people search it out because i think there is there's so much good in here that just speaks back to the film stands on its own and just enriches the characters um i'm like yeah you know, i've got about 200 odd pages to go i'm going to smash through it shortly uh, and then that'll then i'm really looking forward to going back and revisiting the film again. So it's, I, I think it's, it and is look, a And look, thank you for one thing that I want to say to you. Thank you for saying the one thing that I was most scared of and also would have been so overwhelmed by you. Like, imagine if the thank you at the beginning of the book or the dedication <laughs> is for Blake. I was like, I was like, no, it can't be. It would be too much, Stu. It would be too much. And thankfully it wasn't. I was like, yeah, oh, God. Oh, yeah. I don't yeah, know I'm if sure I can live with that. I don't know if I can live with that pressure. I was going to do it just as, as Ben to, <laughs> to write just to write it on my one. Just be like, I don't, 
I don't, I don't know if your one has, but, but my one definitely does. Well, but yeah, it's sort of one thing that sucked with COVID. I think we lost. I think it hurt tenants, not not just the like, not just the discourse on the film itself, but we sort of lost that PR of having. I think it would have been interesting to have Chris, Christopher Nolan out, actually having to press the flesh and to be talking about it constantly and walk yeah. and people hitting him up and actually like asking questions about like just going through some of those key decisions he's made and seeing if they, they hold up to, to the scrutiny, whichever way you come down on it. And it's one thing that with COVID, I don't know if we got too much of man being out on the tours like he would have been, because it's sort of, this is tail end when everything was sort of opening back up, but, it annoyed yeah, me. He, he and Meg were out there. They were out there. And I, but I think also the blessing for us as movie fans is that the primary reason that Michael Mann was had limited access to in, people around the time of its release. And look, it ended up being a New York Times bestseller and one of the biggest selling books of the year anyway. But he was making Ferrari. Ferrari and so we're, yeah. we're all like, look, he didn't. He did a few shows. He did you know a few big shows. And there was a few things promoting the book. And People getting excited for it, but at the same time, a lot of us film fans were like, you know what, Michael, please don't talk. Instead, yeah, go and film Ferrari. Yeah. Go film go, Ferrari. Get like, work. Let chop, the, chop. We're so excited about that. And so that's what I'm actually really looking forward to. A new Michael Mann feature that is going to yeah. be born into existence. And then, you know, what I will absolutely get tired of all of the speculative nonsense that's going to happen and fuel a thousand different posts on a whole bunch of sites that have done absolutely no research and recycle each other. But I will be very excited about seeing if this actually gets turned into a film and the idea that he is still making movies and still has the vitality and the energy to do so. I'm really looking forward to seeing Ferrari to see how that all shapes up. Yeah, no, it's, it's still exciting times. So that's why I'm not accepting you will never say never again. That's <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to say that right now it's going back on the shelf there will be no new one hit minute episodes for the conceivable future. This is my last dance. I'm really looking forward to um, bringing people, modern man in our other shows and particularly moving on to some really exciting future projects um, yeah. and, and stretching everything that we do because I've been so blessed with the reward of the community going with us on all of our different tangents and going to new movies and joining us on journeys like all the president's minutes, which we did straight after. So I'm really thrilled and excited to see what the next year holds. But this series, very much, Stu, is going to be all about us talking about the Heat 2 book. Thank you for helping me introduce this particular uh, this particular episode um, and the start of the series. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't feel the same if you weren't here. My pleasure. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious 
this extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The chief meme officer of one heat minute, one of the great heat fans, a man who I shared the most unhinged Q and A of, uh, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro hosted by Bill Gatabiri. And really, I just want to thank uh, him for being bearing witness to, I don't know, the thirstiest, like eight women in New York city for Al Pacino's uh, current look and state. Um, he's one of my favorite people in the world. It's John Piglin. John, welcome live from Chicago. Uh, to talk to me about a book that I know you were panicked once you received that galley copy, almost panicked to read just as I was. Oh my God, here it is. It's finally here. This continuation of what we consider to be a sacred text. How are you? Yes. Yes, indeed. Good to see you again. Um, and yeah, last, when when last uh, I left you, you were getting in a cab outside of a, a deli in New York where, where we just had a bagel with Minnie Mouse and Spider-Man. Times <laughs> we... Square performers. That's, um, a gr- that's a great diner. I love that diner. <laughs> well, so it was good. Good call by Jordan, I think, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it was that was a great surprise when we went to the screening. I did not know or expect... Um, that that we would uh, be getting a copy of that that night and i actually saw someone in the bathroom with one tucked under their arm and i'm like oh are you, did, is that an early copy of the novel and i just thought he was a reviewer that maybe you know and he's like yeah there's a stack of them on a table downstairs and i was like what so yeah very eager and, and glad to uh glad to glad to finally have it have it having gone through it and, and being able to discuss it with uh, a fellow disciple uh look you're 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 the funnest because when you're when when john's doing anything he'll 
he does memes on the other side of the world that I wake up to. It's like a waking up present all the time. And then when he was reading the book, I was getting voice memos in my text messages that were you doing impressions of uh, Al Pacino, Vincent Hanna, lines from the book. I was getting in voice memos, which I still have. So um, they may feature on the show. You might, might just hear yourself um, in multiple mediums. What are you not going to tell me about Chris Chehalis? What are you not going to tell me about Chris Chehalis? What are you not going to tell me about Chris Chehalis? But we're here talking about the first... We're, we're tackling the prologue in part one and everyone that I'm talking to in the book club, I'm kind of getting them to nominate their favorite part of the book or you know you might have multiple favorite parts but like different parts of the book that really resonated with them and i'm really interested firstly like just overall was your was it an overarchingly positive experience for you or a negative experience like what the book itself because i'm I'm just interested that i guess is overall and then we'll dive into why you specifically chose this section to unpack with me yeah, I mean, for sure, overarching positive. I think with most of the, you know, with most of the fans and most of the uh, the one heat minute um, world, uh, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who just really didn't like it. I mean, I think it would have had to really have, you know, swung and missed to uh, to not to not at least have, you know, a, a diehard heat fan come away pretty satisfied, um, both with uh man and and meg gardner's ability to take the story further but also to um sort of drill down and elaborate on some of the backstories that you know michael mann obviously had planned um long before even you know shooting a frame of the film 25 to you know almost 30 years ago now um so yeah overall overall quite positive um you know there were certain parts i i liked better than others the um some of the some of the real technical aspects of the dark web stuff um i have to say i i would read and reread until my eyes kind of glossed over it <laughs> i would eventually just you know barrel through and be like all right i i trust that i won't have to remember i, I hope this won't be on the test basically <laughs> like, I, I i hope I, I i think i understand what this means but i'm going to see how it plays into the story and i'll i'll bookmark it and go back if i have to um but yeah, and then and then the section I asked when you uh, kindly invited me to be part of this project was um, was actually the opening section, which I thought for anyone who knows me as a very slow reader, especially a fiction, um, that that it would it would be because it's the shortest section and the first <laughs> section, and like that that's as far as I got. But I promise <laughs> I did. But I did um, mention a preference for for uh, you know talking about the prologue and the first section, uh, which kind of takes us up to. Um, the the day or day and a half after um, after the bank heist and gets us to where Chris is first crossing over um, into Texas in '95. And I think the the reason why I was um, you know I think being such a, a diehard fan of Heat that you know anything that expands on the the property that we know and love so well um, and for as great as the ending of the film is. You know, you you can't not also wonder like what happens to Chris. I mean, if yeah. if if there were three people that survived and they all kind of went their their separate directions, you might say like, and you know, and they all lived happily ever after in their own way. But there was only one, you know, last man standing, um, and kind of you know the the effort he already made to reconnect with his old life, 
that didn't go as planned, but it's like, so now he's just out in the wind. Um, and on the flip side, for as much closure as it seems like there was for Hannah on the runway there, you also know that, you know, once, once the, uh, you know, the forensics team shows up and clears out Neil's body and everything else, like all he's thinking about is, is, you know, getting the guy that killed Bosco or at least, you know, contributed to, to Bosco and all the other, uh, all the other LAPD deaths that day. So, um, you know, so you knew there were still a lot of wheels in motion at, when those credits were rolling and, and what happened and where did they go, so. From the prologue. In the chaos of the Far East Bank robbery, Braden was killed at the wheel of a Lincoln by Hannah's detectives Drucker and Casals. Charita, shooting himself with a five-year-old, was shot through the head by Hannah. Hannah's partner Bosco, was gunned down by Chehalis. Three uniformed LAPD were dead and 11 wounded, three seriously. Chehalis was hit above his body armour by a 5.56mm round travelling at 3,100 feet per second. It slammed into the ground and shattered his clavicle, sending the bone shrapnel through his upper thorax. Neil half carried him into a supermarket parking lot where he carjacked a station wagon. They had to get the hell out of LA. Neil never made it. Hannah killed him under the approach lights at the foot of an LAX runway. Edie was waiting for him in a Camaro on the driveway next to the airport marquee hotel on Century Boulevard. Only Chris Chehalis survived. while it's like a philosophically satisfying and deeply unsatisfying moment in that perfect harmony with him and Neil, like, you know, I think in the opening part of this book, he describes like feeling the pulse in his hand and feeling the yes. tremors in his body. And you're like, the, the wow. paroxysms as I had. Yeah. 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 And, and the you feel that, but then also it's like, okay, well we act to close this case. We need to find the money. Like right. know, they did steal like $13 million. Yeah. And yeah. so everyone's dead. The money is gone and right. one guy is left. And so we have to do everything we can to do it. And so, yeah, I, I think that that's, it's like the, you're still treading firmly in settings we've been before, but we're seeing them from different perspectives. We're seeing characters interact that have never interacted before. We're seeing, you know, we're seeing, video surveillance footage of a beautiful woman checking out Neil reading <laughs> stress fractures right. in titanium, which I know that you're a big fan of. Um, and, uh, and so there's, there's that whole part. I think that, you know, when you were telling me that this is the section, I knowing you a little bit, I'm like, I know why, you know, th this is, this is us getting to probe still very much in our world, right. you know, before the world expands. And sometimes it's like, you know, that's the mastery of heat is that it's this massive world and then it get, brings everyone really close together. And then in parts of the book, it kind of has to scatter them across the world and do different things and those sorts of things. And we take people away from our orbit, but then the end of the book rationalizes and sort of gets them all back together again. And we get to our climax, but here we're still very much like dancing with the world that we very, exactly. very clearly understand. Yeah. I was even thinking, you know, you could almost consider it like, just imagine that, that back in, in 94, 95, that man shot, that, that this was all part of the script, 
Yes. Man shot man shot everything cuz I mean you could you could see a world where the movie ends with Chris drifting into Mexico and like that's closure for us. Like we don't know what happens to him exactly but we know he got out, you know. And maybe he reconnects with Charlene, maybe he doesn't. Yeah, but it feels like it could like, be like a you know a post I don't know what I exactly. can't think like of the, the movie like, like yeah, like a mid credits like the credits like are rolling. Right. Yeah, the credits are rolling on one side of the screen and fucking so just a, a world where man shot all this and edited it and said, you know, holy shit, this movie's four hours. We got to, we got to <laughs> you know, we have to cut this down a bit. So yeah, like the, the people in Warner Brothers are like, um, Michael, you've just shot the longest credits ever because this twenty-minute coda right. that you're playing alongside the credits cannot exist. Yeah, and he's like, yeah. all right, I got to take it out. But that's the yeah, I absolutely have the same same sort of feeling when I read this with you know as well when i read it i was like i mean i'm back in the world again yes and i'm i'm glad i'm i'm glad that we started there because i you know we've known for a while that this was going to be a prequel sequel and i wanted to get the prequel and backstory and all that but um i was hoping they would drop us you know into la the day after the robbery um to sort of see what happens in that um that's exactly what happened and you mentioned the um the time span of the movie we do get a little bit of a hint although it's vague um that i i did i don't think i really put together until i was sort of rereading the section for for our, our chat here that um when they're going through Edie's apartment or i'm sorry when they're going when they're still in neil's house um drucker's got the the uh stress fractures book and he says he bought it last month yeah we know that the robbery was on the seventh so i mean last month could be eight days ago last month could be three weeks ago like we're not um, we're not too sure, but there is some, you know, something that sort of narrows it down at least to that. It, we know that at a maximum it's a month. Yes. Yeah. Pretty yeah, much. Exactly. We know, we know now that at least it's a maximum of a month. We've had the theory that it's as little as seven days, but it's, and, yeah. Well, and you, you know, if you really drill down, think about like in 1995, how many days worth of surveillance would a random bookstore have, you know, have kept, um, you know, easily accessible that they're able to rouse the manager and she's able to to find you know within so we assume it's at least within a couple you know say say a retail place keeps up a like couple of weeks, weeks. yeah a couple of weeks that. yeah so so that helps our investigation did you like did you like that essentially and i and and this is the this is what i say when i say that this book is at its best and sometimes is other times challenging is because it's like the richest appendices of our favorite film ever. You know, like yeah. it's like a, as much as it's a sequel and a prequel, it's like especially this is like an appendices for everything that we know. You know, the 100%. immediate fallout and and the fact that Vincent goes to, you know, I can I immediately visualize it. I'm like, Vincent is standing when Neil stands when he does that famous Alec Colville painting. Yes. And he's I touching, made that note. And he's touching the window. Note. He mentions, and there's even a passage about um, his left hand touches the glass. Or yes. his, I mean, I think he says his right hand touches his the right glass. His right hand touches the glass. And so I, it's said, an and I went it's to look version. up the painting, and sure enough, it was De Niro's left hand. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. once again, they're the, the yin and yang. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I loved it. it was, I, I caught myself a few times, you know, just when I when I first read it, um, you know, the the dialogue and everything like my my brain kept going god whoever wrote this really has the the rhythm of heat down i'm like oh yeah like, <laughs> that would explain like like who knows heat as well as someone as as well as me who's seen it dozens of times but, oh the guy who wrote and directed it sure that makes sense story checks out yeah it's 
that um that was fun about the first few you know the first week when a few people had got their hands on it you know i was enjoying our friend sean burns uh tweets because he was just like pulling random vincent hannah quotes out of yeah. the book and tweeting it yeah. and everyone was getting very excited like it's like i love this shit like i love i love thinking of pacino yeah. Um, uh, think th because you know he's so vivid in our minds that we don't need to we don't need to do like Disney and like digitally recreate him. Like the the ghost of Al Pacino is Vincent Hanna haunts our brain and says lines in our head every day. So you know when he's yeah. got a few new quotes, it's it's good stuff. For as um you know for as much speculation as there'll be about casting a film version, I I kind of hope I, I'd be happy with a CGI. <laughs> with the hackiest stand-up comedian who just does an impeccable Pacino impersonation. Like, that's good for me. I'll be happy with that. Uh, yeah, and in places, like, not, not only in appendices, but it's almost like, I mean, especially the the prologue where they're recounting the bank um, mm. heist, it's almost... <laughs> it's almost like a cut-and-paste montage of the, of the script where, you know, yeah. Nate's... where they're almost, you know, kind of accidentally quoting Nate's line about two telcos and a cellular and um describing the armored car heist in the beginning how you know when he's <laughs> when they talk about how they ignored the loose cash which you can't not hear in ted levine's voice like they ignored the loose cash they ignored the loose cash so good um, and and uh whether when they're talking about the location of the bank down on flower and figaro <laughs> <laughs> the line about uh when neil first finds that you know when neil picks up that that there's the heat is around the corner, basically. Um, when he his first reaction was calm and smooth because smooth was fast. Fast wasn't fast. Like it yes. seems kind of corny at, for, on first read, but then you read it and you're like, you know exactly what he's trying to convey. You know, as anyone who's who's watched Neil work, that you know, fast for fast sake is is sloppy and um, and can can get out of hand. But the fast fast wasn't fast. I like that. There's a poem at the beginning of part one the spoon jackson yeah. spoon jackson and so if anyone if you don't know spoon jackson so stanley russell spoon jackson was a californian poet and wrote all of his poetry from san quentin prison and then eventually you know it was san quentin um in the 80s and then california state prison and the quote is, and 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 I, and I may be I may be wrong, but there's not really any other poems that sort of start any of the other openings. It's just kind of like um, this particular one, and it kind of sets the scene. And I feel like it's this is such a Michael Mann thing that someone who has done a lifetime of prison and has this institutionalized mindset is 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 someone who completely resonates with his vision of the guys that fascinate him um and he says realness eats raw meat and does not waver he has the staying power of the sun he walks only in his own shoes and so that is not neil mccauley that poem for me that poem that poem is a krisha hellas right yeah, you know that's the that's Christian Hellas's epitaph. You know that's his, right. that's that's who he is. Realness eats raw meat. Um, that's, you know, he's an instinctual beast, if you like, yes. and that's and that's and that's where we start. So we're in Los Angeles in 1995. Take me through some of your 
your scribbles. Take me through some of the things that you love about this opening. Well, I like the the prologue, especially like I've said, it's sort of a montage. Um, I like the uh, when they're talking about how Vincent, you know, sort of was tipped off about Neil's crew to begin with. It said like working his network of informants, which I, which was sort of a very professionally generous description of sitting down with Tone Loke and you know and <laughs> almost and almost missing it if Tone Loke hadn't said slick as he stands up, like there might be no there might be no story. Um, so in a way, it sounded like maybe Vince wrote that part of the uh, <laughs> prologue it's an av- himself. An, an avatorial for for the work that he did. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I like the sort of, and I, I think I, I probably missed him on first reading, or or, or you know glanced over. Him. I don't know how anybody uh, couldn't have the a couple little insights. You know, we call it foreshadowing, if you like. The um, when they're when he's describing how Edie you know, sort of affected Neil. Um, he She opened a door that he thought was closed. It was closed on like a bloody highway in Mexicali. Yes. Like that's, you know, that, that they, I, I don't think I knew, I didn't, I didn't mentally bookmark that when we first read the prologue thinking like, oh, I bet we're going to hear more about that. Like I, you know, maybe that was just, uh, I thought just a, not a throwaway, I mean, nothing's throwaway in here, but just like a, a minor detail that, um, you know, there's no way to realize that we we get some follow up on that in the chapters to come. It, it almost like gives, not almost. It it definitely gives a little um, background to those, including myself, who, you know, maybe say one of the maybe one of the flaws of Heat is is the. I I believe people's argument who say they don't buy the romance between Neil and Edie. Like it seems sort of contrived for the story, but then when you hear again, you would never know this just watching the film, but when you get some of this backstory about what's happened to him in the past and and who he's lost in the past, like, I think that, you know, lends weight to their relationship and how, you know, she just kind of came out of nowhere. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't expecting it anything like that. But it was something that was missing for him. Yes. That's what the book reframes. Yeah. Um, and some other cool little insights, like I, I don't think I knew until reading the book that Charlene's wave off was specifically a blackjack gesture. I mean, yeah. I, I think it was, it was, I, I knew what, it, what he took it to mean and what it was supposed to mean. But, um, the fact that that, you know, ties back to their, their first meeting in Vegas and, and things, um, that was a cool little detail for me as, as was, I never I confess, I never noticed that um, when after the after the abandoned uh, uh, metal heist that they meet outside of a giant like power transformer. Yes. To uh, to ward off the possibility that they might be, you know, the, the trackers in the car might still be throwing a signal. Yeah, that was a nice little detail because, you know, it always it just feels like another fantastic la location for la location's right. sake but you don't yeah exactly. I, I certainly didn't put that together that a power transformer at that time with 1995 technology would screw with police surveillance or work vehicles or yeah. whatever the case may be but it makes sense because they they know that they're got at that point right and it you know it fits right in you know um thematically with uh, a chop shop or the the shipping warehouse where um you know where they do the sort of where they get made the LAPD <laughs> it was good did any did you did you feel like you picked up any new insights to the film i i 
at least the, through the prologue? The the prologue, th- that would be the major one, the Mexicali stuff. And, and for me, it's if I'm... And, and it's just details about the specifics of different cars and choices. And, mm. and I just love, uh, m- one of my favorite phrases, because Michael Mann has said it for decades. He's just like, and, and it's, a, it's a Chicagoism. So talking to you, it's the thing when I went, went back and made a note was like, the line, the line is, um, at the same time, each would blow the other out of his socks with no hesitation. And I'm like, that's yeah. such a Chicago... Dennis Farina, Charlie Adamson line, like they'll blow each other out of their socks, you know, like that's yeah. the, but no, this for me, when I was reading it, this is one of the like speediest things. Cause it was just like, I was pulling, I was actively editing the montage of this movie in my head when I was reading it. I was like, yeah. I was like, I was like, Oh, this is the way that you cut you, you, you front load a movie that is heat and you right. take these key snapshots to, to bring people back into the story, this full immersion. And it has to be like blisteringly quick, but it has to be rich with, I guess, the philosophy of what the movie is. And it does both. It says like, look at how, look at how good these crews are, but also this is the philosophy. And these are why these guys ran head to head. And these are why they were worthy opponents, I guess is, is where, is where I was going with that. Another parallel I was thinking of when the, uh, in, when Vincent is in Neil's house, that there was the uh, the one bottle of single malt on the counter, which is the same as the bottle of Jack that Vince always reaches for. Uh, we learned later Neil's also got vodka in the fridge, so he's he's got a a wide range of cocktail preferences. A wide range, the yeah. the, the smallest wide range of all time. That yeah, barely yeah. anything. The same three shirts, the same suit, wears all the time. That's like the. Wasn't it Steve Jobs had that and like Zuckerberg? And I always think of um, the Jeff Goldblum fly too. Doesn't Gina Davis make some comment about how he's got like the same suits in his closet? And since the pandemic and working from home, I was like, I bet our, I bet my neighbors think uh, I have the six different gray hoodies and jeans. Like, nope, same one. <laughs> I did like some specific callbacks that I made a note on. Anything in this bullshit, sterile, white with seagull shit on the windows place <laughs> tells you who the fuck that might be. Like, uh, that's the uh, dead tech postmodernistic <laughs> bullshit house. <laughs> like, Vincent Hanna has architectural opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Drucker hands him the book. Great reading list. Cold, clinical shit. A price tag is stuck to the back. Hennessy and Ingalls. You know this place? Santa Monica, yeah. It's an art and architecture bookstore. Hannah flips through the heavy stock pages. A receipt is stuck inside. Bought the book last month. Paid cash. The roll of the surf seeps through the windows. Hannah holds up the receipt. Drucker's already dialing. Hold the manager's ass in right now. Neil was in that store three weeks ago buying this. Who was with him? Who waited on him? Who cashed him out? Drucker heads out the door. Hannah stands there in front of the ocean. That's a great detail because it feels to me like Neil keeps the receipt. Not because he's 
accounting for some of his purchases right. to write it off on tax. It's more of like, he's going to read this book and when someone in the bookstore throws a receipt in there, he's not, it's one element of what he's doing that like, he doesn't care if right. that record is there. Like he's not, a, he's, he goes, he, he, he's, he feels like a guy who buys a book to read a chapter, a very mm-hmm. focused chapter specifically on what he's about. And then he moves on. But this is that what leads to a fantastic scene, a fantastic scene where they go to the bookstore. And, yes. And Pacino spots Edie. Yeah, that that leads to that scene. Before that, we go we go back to Nate and Chris a little bit, right? Yes, we do. Um, and it occurred to me, like I, you know, I, I think I appreciated and knew the sort of um, the risk Nate is taking by continuing to you know shelter chris because obviously he left once already yes um and then came back and you you know it's you know selfishly nate could have easily you know kept that share of the bank heist and um you know cut him loose um so it's you get the feeling that maybe he's doing it somewhere between like out of respect for neil or to almost like try to get it right where neil got it wrong like i i tried to tell neil um you know to follow the code and he didn't and look what happened and he's just trying like hell to keep to keep chris on it he can't make him it's a free country brother but um (laughs) but he uh you know he certainly tried and i had that there's no way this was intentional but it, it um when when nate is is trying to get chris up and moving it reminded me of like han finding luke skywalker on hoth where he's just like Instead of Yoda Dagobah, he's like Charlene Dominic. No, you gotta get, gotta go, gotta go. He's, he's trying to uh, he's trying to nurse him. Um, but but also, I think that's a good point. Nate is in this world, and Nate has loyalties. And life mm-hmm. or death, the tragedy of Nate keeps going for me because it's like he's a custodian of all of these. He's either a custodian of these guys who are living on the other side of the law and helping them navigate this naturally sort of closing noose of like police attention that eventually dissipates and knowing and 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 he's happy to wait the long game like this is a guy who's probably been in prison for many years before he came out and has a record and has contacts and all that sort of stuff and can navigate the way through the system but he's also then duly obligated that he's got stashes of money or spare places Mm -hmm. or different locations that he can stash stuff and he's like yeah, I've got a few places around that definitely aren't in my name and I paid someone off to give me the place and give me a key. And so a Koreatown apartment, you know, with thumping music, um, a la Vincent walking into that yeah. nightclub to see, um, to see Tone Logue. It's, um, my brother Rich is going to talk to you, um, yeah. <laughs> Richard Torina. And so he's there and again, another sort of semi-familiar landscape to us, but it's just another thing of like, he's obligated, he's got to get him out and he has these alliances. And I think that that's what makes Nate different and makes this crew different is because their alliances go beyond death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I like because, this. because they work in this and it, it, they still live lives. Yes, yeah. And I like you speaking of, um, you know, Nate's place. I like that. Uh, I like that we have the recency of Tokyo Vice to sort of like, to call up that, I mean, I don't know if you did, but like every time it described the neon coming through the window blinds and things, yeah. like I just pictured a lot of those scenes in Tokyo Vice. And I'm glad that they, that the book keeps emphasizing that it's K-pop thumping 
through the wall. <laughs> Otherwise, my brain would have still been playing House of Pain from <laughs> from 2 a.m. Uh, with with Richard and Albert. Um, and I do like just before uh, we leave Nate and Chris, I like that even after the reality of Neil's death hits Chris, that he still asks, um, "Did Neil get Wayne Grove?" Like that that's that that's still on his mind. Like. Um, that at least there's you know maybe it was one last it was one last closed door. Well, well, also that question for me also, and I wonder if it's for you, but it's like it's also a threat, right? A hundred percent. Because Wayne Grove, now he's the most vulnerable. There's no crew around him. There's no team. He's shot, and Wayne Grove, even knowing Nate or having a handle on some of that community, he becomes a problem because if he decides that wants to start stirring up even more trouble then chris has to keep his eye out for wango yeah on top of on top of the entire on top of every on top of all of lapd after shooting bosco um so and so yeah when you mentioned how the the vincent discovering ed on the surveillance like that that moment i would talk something about a jolt going through vincent or something Mm. like it even though we don't want anything bad to happen to ed like um we we know Hannah is so well fleshed out that we are excited for him. Like we are excited anytime he gets a little lead like that. You know, it's it's like hearing Slick or um, you know, knowing Hugh Benny dimed him on the uh the the bank <laughs> heist, like we're we're with him, like yes, Vincent got another lead, you know, the chase <laughs> continues. And then also, you know, I was trying to put together we talk about how long the movie is, but how long Vincent's been up at this point. Because he was, you know, he he was Neil was in the wind. Bye bye. He was going to go to his hotel and sleep for a month, but then Lauren, and so then he was at the hospital. And yeah, he's he's Neil. he's he's running thirty. He'd be thirty six hours at least thirty six. That was what I was thinking. Somewhere yeah. between thirty six and forty eight hours. And look, like, I did the same thing to go see Heat. I was essentially away for thirty six hours. <laughs> well, but yeah. Yeah. So if by um, the end, when I was getting off into that cab in New York City, if I look like a fucking lunatic, that's exactly why. Because I, I would. I, w- I was hoping you got to. I was hoping you got to take a stand-up nap at FAO's. <laughs> Checking out. Um, and you know when when he discovers Edie and sort of makes that connection, it's also a moment where we kind of remember that Vincent isn't all-knowing, like. For as far as he knows, Edie is an accomplice and sheltering Chris. And, you know, he doesn't know off the bat that she's, you know, for the most part, uh, a bystander. Um, well, because but... the last time he sees, the last time he sees that crew coupled up, like when they first say, who's the loner? Like that first Neil moment, Neil doesn't have a partner there. True. Yeah. And everyone with the greatest respect to all those ladies, Elaine, Charlene, Charlene, they've already caught and tried to use to leverage to get Chris. You imagine right. that Elaine and the kids are being interviewed or something like that uh, in, in some respect. They've seen Anna and Treo. Right. Like, you know, if they haven't seen them yet or they've been they've been told that we assume that they were told about them with Hugh Benny because they definitely know that, you know, the guy that they're on is gone. They know that Breeden's dead. So there's kind of all this fallout of everything that's been going on. Wayne Grove's dead. And so now discovering her just means like if you were his presumption, which I think is absolutely fair, is like if you were part, if you were uh, coupled up with this crew, you know that they don't do this for a living. You right. know that they, they don't sell metal. Yeah, sell metal kitchen cabinets or something. <laughs> yeah, the whole scene with Edie, you could you know it, it depends. I know we'll maybe talk a bit about casting. You'll get into it in future episodes, I know, but 
it's just so hard to to the the, the way it's written here seems tailor made for 1995 Amy Brenneman performance of that sort of of the uh what did I write down he there's a passage about her seeming like a doe uh headed into busy traffic or something yeah, yes and I was like that is just perfect like that's that's her she she just flirts with this guy she's seen in a bookstore and just had you know had no idea where things would turn from there um so yeah, that was a great, uh, that's a great characterization. I, I, and I love that they focus on this line. She nods. He said, when it rains, you get wet. Michael knew the risks. Yeah. It's just yeah. like, that's the, one of the things. When it rains, you get wet. And she did, so did I. Which I thought of when they were talking about Dr. Bob. I was like, I wish there was a flip side. <laughs> where it was like, when it, when it pains, you get vet. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why you're the chief meme officer in 1-8 Minute yes. Productions. When it rains, yeah. you get vet. I need, I need whatever happens with the rest of the casting. I need Jeremy Piven to make a teeny, uh, a teeny cameo just to deliver that line somehow. So funny. <clears throat> we go to Nate's bar and we learn that it's called the Blue Room. The Blue Room, which I can't think of a more perfect name for uh, a Michael Mann bar. A Michael Mann a bar and a Michael Mann movie. Um, yeah, I, I love that scene. I love that you know when at first it seems like nobody is surprised that the LAPD burst through the door of that place. Like, I think they, it's, it's not their first visit. Uh, it's not their first rodeo with an LA, with an LA ride. Yes. Yeah. And I, I liked, you know, uh, well, first of all, the line, um, he smells like brute and dry cleaned polyester <laughs> is, is absolutely what I always imagined every scene would be like when they're in the car together, uh, or, you know, when they're back at his house, like add to the, add to add stale beer into the mix probably at the bar and um so i love that line and i, I like that we see somebody that vincent can't immediately get off base you know like nate's one person he doesn't immediately rattle um what no, he's he, doing is yeah he, he he's, doesn't the vincent, vincent's doing the thing with nate and he goes if you got cause arrest me if not your presence is discouraging my midday business yeah yeah uh elude do i elude <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually a little I, I was a little disappointed that I think at one point, you know, he says, you know, how do you know Neil McCauley? And Nate says, who? And I wanted him to go, what are you, a fucking owl? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was happy and disappointed that there was no <laughs> that there wasn't such a direct callback. Like that would be that would be a bit Star Wars prequel on the nose um uh to do that. But I yeah, I like you know, Vincent doesn't get Neil too off base when they go to Kate Mantellini, but he's not He's not doing the give me all you got, Vincent. Like he's no, but he's not. He's not. He's not. He's not fighting. Also, right. um, yeah, he's he's not. He's not fighting with with Nate. Nate would have a presence. Like we can. We can physically. We can render how big and full of life like 95 john void is and how much that would be like he's a peer like an older brother fraternally right. to a, like a to to neil and so it's like your younger brother snapping at you he's just like i'm not fucking i'm not fucking intimidated by you and like right. and again speaking of not their first rodeo this is not my first rodeo that i've been interrogated by cops and if you don't have cause to say that i'm you know you've got you say that a woman came over and saw me talking to this man 
what did I talk to him about? Did any exchange of information? Did I pass him any details? Did I do anything like that? She may have heard me talk on the phone. It wasn't surveilled. It's all like, what is it? Plausible deniability. So he, he's not worried. He's not worried. He's not, it's not like people can just go call up all these things. Like, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to get him. No, we're, we're pretty confident he's, he's covered his tracks. Yes, definitely. Even as Vincent works his network of informants. as (laughs) Yes. Eluding. I do like how Vincent describes me. He's wasted time. This guy's like talking to last week's roadkill. Such a great line. And then we start to see Chris on the road going south. We get our Mexicali mentions. We start moving. This is where we're sort of streaming towards the border. Yeah, I, the, I love the great move of of uh, Frida, as we're calling her. Um, Frida Kahlo, Frida Kahlo, yeah. Frida Kahlo, um, calling her brother, who looks enough like Chris in the end, uh, just to do follow. Just the the, the, the whole um, interaction at the border, like Mr. Shiny Glasses or whatever they call it, yeah, Mr. Yeah. I Am God. Like, it's clearly, it's almost as if Chris is narrating the whole encounter. The... The big part here is that he calls Charlene. Right, which is uh, pretty bold. I would assume yeah, even, stupid. even after she waves him off that they would still be on her phone, even if there's even if they don't pick up, you know, the the 1995 satellite phone or whatever it was at the time. I think this is the other thing we've got to remember. Like in 95, if they don't have her, they keep her all night in a police safe house down by Venice. Yeah. They release her to go. She's probably facing some further questioning and mm. will have to come in and formally do stuff. But the fact that he can get in contact with her and then he does is like, yeah, it feels like a nice coda to that moment because they, you, I don't think you need it, but I think you, you need it now in this, you don't need it in the film certainly, but you need it in this moment of like, this is a final reminder of like what he's actually lost because it's Charlene and Dominic. And in the Charlene scene, it's just all wordless. They're communicating with hand gestures that, uh, you know, the meaning is significant to them and them only. And so that, you know, he's like, if you've got to get away and you basically have one chance to talk to her and here's her number, but that's it. You've got to go and you basically can't talk to her for, you know, at least six months. Like you've got to stay the hell away. Right. And we do get, like you mentioned, the a, a bit more of a foreshadowing of the Mexicali. Um, how he's going back? I can't go and fuck no. It just it just has to come back around to this place, doesn't it? I'm not going backward into the fire into nothing. And then she keeps reassuring him they're not staying there. Yes, it's just a border crossing. Yeah, I'm realizing as I was as I was rereading, I, I sort of had stopped making notes so much. I was just getting into the story. And <laughs> like, like. Can't make notes now. I'm traveling into Mexico with Jeffrey. Was it Jeffrey Bergman? Yeah, with Jeff Bergman and That's a woman who said, "Who a woman who looks like she can bench press a Chrysler?" Yes, yeah, I love that. And and they don't. Um, at least the the way it reads, that the whole act with her grandmother having a stroke and everything. You know, they we don't we don't get the backstory of them planning that. <laughs> like if that no. was improvised on the fly, like well done. Like that was a. Uh, um, you know, as someone who's who's performed improv before, like that's quite a good uh, quite a good yes and collaboration. For <laughs> speaking as a Chicagoan, you guys are you know so so big in your community of improv. It's like yeah, absolutely, yeah. yes yeah. and 
How many times have we had to trick cops to get to sneak criminals over the border? A lot. Exactly. exactly. Essentially, we end one line or a, a line before the last two sentences is somehow, someday I'll be back. Hmm. And, you know, framing up, I guess, the entire conceit of the story that Chris is still out there. And then one day he may encounter Vincent Hanna again. One day he'll come back to LA and then shit's going to go down. And eventually we, we get there. You know, I like that it drops us right into the story where we left off um, as if we never left. And um, it's it's just a great uh, weaving of the end of the movie, you know, into this into this new story. And, and like I said, I almost kind of imagine as an as an extended deleted scene, you know, if you like that, that could have just as easily, you know, if, if the if the script was another 30 pages, like these are the 30 pages. basically. <laughs> And now we've got a special call-in from One Heat Minute Productions crew member and patron, Marissa Buxbaum. A terrific theory about the parallels between Vincent Hanna and one Michael Corleone. Michael Mann has done something pretty crafty with the subtext in Heat 2, the metatext of Al Pacino, really which is to present us with a series of major parallels that combine for what I like to call the Michael Corleone theory of Vincent Hanna. Exhibit A, they're both intense, intelligent, and Italian, and the youngest of three biological siblings. Exhibit B, both are war veterans who voluntarily enlisted. C, Vincent Hanna's father was a former bootlegger who was injured in the throat during a shootout, causing him to speak in a rasp afterward. That's about as subtle as a two-by-four right there. D, both have former wives who were killed tragically inside a car. Not to mention that Vincent's wife suffered from repeat miscarriages, and as for Kay, well, she said it was a miscarriage. E, and this one's my favorite, the memory image or the dream image of a silent banquet table during wartime. That scene where Michael is left alone at the table at the end of The Godfather Part Two contrasted with the revelation in Heat 2 that the dream template from the diner scene actually originates in Vietnam with the dead bodies of a family who quote-unquote preferred a dignified suicide. F. Michael Corleone crosses the moral event horizon. You could argue that he does this twice, actually, once at the end of Part 1 and again at the end of Part 2 of The Godfather with the execution of Frito, his brother. Vincent Hanna crosses the existential event horizon when he kills Neil, who is nothing if not symbolically just as close. Both experience a spiritual death as a result, and much of Heat 2 is Vincent Hanna spiraling further downward into dangerous impulsivity, substance abuse, and further alienation from his family. So is this guy something, or is he something? You can get even more granular than this, which I won't do, but it's there and it's laid on too thick to be coincidental. Combined with the abundant imagery pairing Vincent with symbols of death and damnation, a carrion bird with a grin like a reaper's scythe, a trip down the freeway sticks for a fiery final showdown with the demonic Wardell, he too paints an even darker portrait of my favorite obsessive police detective than was suggested by the film. That concludes this episode of the Heat 2 Book Club on One Heat 
minute and one heat minute productions. I've been your host, Blake Howard. Huge special thank you to John P. Glynn for doing the lion's share of the deconstruction of both the prologue and part one Los Angeles with me. Huge thank you to Stu Coote, whom without him, this entire expedition would not exist. And a big, big extra special thank you to Marissa Buxbaum, one of our newest patrons and crew members for sharing that amazing theory and taking so much time and effort and thought to really get in and be a part of the show. If you love what we're doing, check out oneheatminute.com. If you want to get in touch, it's mail at oneheatminute.com. If you want to be a patron and join Marissa and send voice memos and be new callers on any of these episodes of the Heat 2 Book Club, patreon.com forward slash one heat minute and you'll instantly be made part of the crew as soon as you do that thank you so much for listening we look forward to catching up with you again in about a week's time for this episode we have six amazing episodes we have incredible guests we've got part two coming next week the lion's share of that deconstruction with guy davis but until next time we'll catch you on another episode of one heat minute just around the corner And it feels like such a 20th century movie. It feels like something David Lean would have done or tried to do uh, when he still had that kind of currency. And even then he might not have succeeded. It's incredible. Cause like, if you, if you don't have time to watch all five seasons of Lost, you can just watch Fearless. <laughs> not a week goes by that I don't think of the ending of Gallipoli. It's left a mark, a uh, year of living dangerously. Uh, you know, and then something like Last Wave, even that's so uh, deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land, the story of place. You know, I don't know that I'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a you know sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 attached to it as that. And something always so poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me, and I don't think I ever really recovered from it. <laughs> and I'm still upset that they played it in school. Like, I don't think it's actually possible to make an, they say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Because yes. no one watches that movie then thinks, I want to go to war. Uh, Peter Weir is the greatest director that Australia has ever produced. Like, bar none, hands down. Like, no yeah. one else has even in the room. I think you have covered some really titanic filmmakers and some really titanic films so far, but I I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way, and we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name, why he isn't more in that rarefied air, yes. because I think film for film, he's one of our very best filmmakers. He has brought his A-game repeatedly to many <laughs> properties. There are films of his that I hold very dear. Fearless, uh, you know, uh, The Mosquito Coast. I will fight somebody if they talk bad about The Mosquito Coast. It's, man, I love that movie. But in general, I just think he is a special filmmaker, a smart, lyrical, um, hallucinatory filmmaker. He's a very dreamy filmmaker, and I don't think he gets his due. You know, Master and Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, you know, it's easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it. But at the same time, there's such an intimacy in the relationships. Uh, which I think is not just a great film and one of the last great epics in the truest sense. 
um, I, I think is actually kind of a sliding doors change point moment in, in cinema history. I think 2003, when that comes along and it is a an old fashioned, you know, we don't make them like that anymore type film. I think if Master and Commander spawns a franchise at that point, the entire cinema landscape globally is completely different. That That's the movie that I wanted to see 10 of those, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything, and God bless you, but Master and Commander <laughs> should have been. It's one of those things, again, I I am not, uh, I'm not a seafaring man, sir. <laughs> but there is a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of really watching a, a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. If you're gonna pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. Yeah, very excited to see what you you pull you pull out of this, Blake. That's right. Our next series is Peter Weir and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander. The series is called Podcaster and Commander. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.